0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio
1: editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pell Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GMing story beats. Jakov Blomkin.
1: Breaking the fourth
0: wall. And the business plot. The part where we talk about murder. Right, Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But
1: each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game
0: like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well known than it deserves. Ken and Robin
1: to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, can can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're
0: pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no
1: good we get up to and as always Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful and spot on Uh, yours looks fetchingly betrachian the deal is this head to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin oh dear (laughs) (laughs) buy murder of crows and get the Ken and Robin promo cards you may never have the chance to commit such
0: foul deeds again foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs (laughs) that's right not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Or follow
1: the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Philip, a Patreon backer with one name, possibly the disembodied spirit, Asks Ken and Robin, how do you incorporate the hope-fear cycle of Hamlet's hit points into gumshoe or other non-drama system games that aren't HeroQuest? I'll bet he didn't ask all of that. Is it something that happens naturally through the rhythm of the in-game narrative? Do you adjust difficulties on the fly, or are there other tricks or mechanics you use to achieve this emotional response? Robin? Well, first of all, Philip really did ask all of that. He did?
0: That's a verbatim, yes, the backers are not only backing us, but they're filling our questions with plugs for our work. So I think we've done our job well.
1: Yes, no evidence for Philip being a disembodied spirit with knowledge of the astral plane has increased.
0: So uh Hamlet's hit points uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it is my uh, book of narrative analysis that's directed at uh, GMs and other role players in an attempt to sort of give you a sense under the hood of how narrative works, not so much in terms of its structure because structure is uh, pretty fungible for role playing games. Uh, you can't it's very difficult to create a structure like you can in a uh, work of passive entertainment, but rather sort of the moment-to-moment engagement that keeps people, that keeps you interested in one uh, story, and uh, if it's not there, less interested in another. And the secret to that is that there are uh, different types of what I call narrative beats, but all of them are either connected by their emotional content. They are either upbeats, uh, the beats that make you, uh, as the audience member, uh, feel... Uh, good or hopeful, or there are uh, downbeats, and those are ones that uh, either introduce confusion or stress or fear. And basically any compelling scene in fiction, you are moved between hope and fear. There's something that you hope will happen, uh, and its converse is the thing that you fear happening. And so, as Philip suggests, uh, a couple of my game designs actually include game mechanics, that make the up-and-down structure, the fact that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, and it's unpredictable, but uh, within a pattern where you're not all going in one direction and or going up or down, that's boring. So both uh, Hillfolk, in its procedural uh, mechanic, ensures that you uh, have less of a chance to succeed sometimes than others. Uh, also, even in the dramatic a mechanic, you know, you either are giving up a mole rat or a, sorry, a, a drama token at the end of each uh, uh, scene and, uh, uh, or, or getting one, uh, sorry for the error there in, in my group, we're now using plastic mole rats instead of tokens. <laughs> and so I've now ruined my understanding of my own game. I'm now saying
1: you get a mole rat, which is, yeah, that's going to be a little harder sell I l- think.
0: a little opaque. Well, first of all, yeah. I don't know. I don't have a source of plastic mole rats to sell to other people. So um, well, anyway, that that's that's a footnote. Watch
1: edge. this space.
0: Right, yeah. uh, Hero Quest also has that sort of uh, changing cycle where the your success on the previous test influences what the difficulty number will be uh, on the upcoming test, so that uh, the difficulties fluctuate according to dramatic emotional necessity rather than from a Simulation of what would really be happening in this world, because we're trying to tell a story that has that emotional up and down structure. So there's the big chunk of uh, explanation to ground you in what we're saying. So basically, the, the the lesson here is to pay attention to how well your players think they are doing. And now there's a distinction between how you think they are doing, often and how they think they are doing. You as GM may very well know that your plan is for them to, as soon as they get through that door, they're going to discover that they've got some big advantage, that the uh, you know the alien craft that they've been looking for for two episodes is going to be on the other side of that hangar doorway, and they're going to find it, and it's going to be big and exciting. But if they're sitting on the other side of the door, arguing and fretful and concerned, and they feel that they've been... Uh, you know, had the goodness kicked out of them a bunch of times in a row, they may be really super dispirited to the point where that revelation might not be enough. Or uh, more often, you will have the idea, well, in order for them to get the craft, they're going to have to have one final fight with a bunch of people on the other side because it wouldn't be anticlimactic for them to just open the hangar doors and there's the craft. There's going to be some other obstacle. But it happens in the way that this game has played out that they're already feeling really down and bedraggled. And they're not going to resent being able to just go in and grab the craft and fly off and having the bad guys shooting at them from a distance. That's going to be a big up moment for them. So ultimately, the thing is to read the room, pay attention to how well everybody perceives themselves as doing, and then adjust accordingly. And that adjustment can either be you change the difficulty ratings... So the middle ground there could be, well, uh, rather than skipping the fight altogether, I'll just have a bunch of stormtroopers there who are easily overcome, and that'll be fun, and uh, there'll be a moment of one more moment of suspense and then another even bigger moment of victory because they mow the guys down and get in the ship and fly off. Or, uh, and conversely, if things are going too easily for them, and this is something that we are much more accustomed to doing, is... Thinking that they've won a bunch of easy victories and so making things tougher. But we often forget to untighten the screws on player characters uh, as they feel more of a, a sense of being uh, beleaguered or banged up or, or what have you. So there's all sorts of various ways that you can track how things are going. But the ultimate thing is, is just to track them. Are any questions uh, appearing uh, for you, Ken?
1: Well, I'm, I'm. More questioning the question in that the notion of tracking beats, as you say, you should always be watching the room and reading the room. But I think that because role playing stories are generally emergent in the sense that they happen at the table and not in the head of the GM, that attempting to say, well, we've had two downbeats. We should have an upbeat or we've had three downbeats. We should have two upbeats or trying to plot out the sort of cycle that you see in a a fully constructed work like a screenplay or a regular play, can lead you down a primrose path in which you're like, "Well, I know that the natural moment at the game of the uh, at the table right now is to push this uh victory to completion or to uh be hammered by a Dracula one more time, but because we haven't had an upbeat in this amount of time, I'm worried that the imaginary viewer who doesn't exist will uh, lose sympathy with our player characters or whatever. That, that's not a concern that you have as, as a GM because the players have sympathy with the player characters always and forever. And part of the reason that the upbeat and downbeat system exists is to engage a putative viewer in a story. The viewers, the important viewers are already engaged in the story. They're playing it. So I think that too much concern for a screenplay structure or a play structure is self-defeating at the table and it can actually get in the way of the kind of reading of the room that you're talking about. I think that you should always be reading the room and you, and you should be saying, all right, are my players ready for a moment of, of one kind or another? And then if there's one in your deck, deal it to them. But if there's not, you know, push through and get to the next logical part of the adventure because players have a sense when something was falsified that they didn't really deserve this thing or they, you know, either way, right. They didn't deserve this triumph or they didn't deserve this hosing. And if you've done it to hit some sort of imaginary metric in your head, you wind up actually doing the inverse of what beat uh, theory is supposed to do. And you remove a connection between the characters and the audience in this case.
0: Right. And the the thing is to do it seamlessly is to, have it be sufficiently part of your intuition that you, as you suggest, are not seen to be visibly doing that. And, uh, of course, if you have a rule system that already kind of does that to begin with, that's, you've got that rule system, but that's not what the question is. So, yeah. uh, ultimately, the, the end goal is to internalize this sense so that it is part of your uh, intuitive storytelling uh, kit that you're not even really realizing that you're doing it when you are doing it. If, however, uh, you find this concept a little uh, difficult, there are things that you can kind of do just to remind yourself where things are at. So, you know, you can borrow a little spinner uh, from any uh, kid's board game that has a spinner and just sort of uh, move it when you feel that there's like a big upbeat or a big downbeat so that uh, you don't necessarily, aren't necessarily going to have a one to one relationship between you know, okay, I'm going to slash the difficulty numbers here because it's down. But if you are doing that, even for a couple of sessions, again, it's a set of training wheels that will get you to start just sort of doing it automatically. And uh, as as we're both suggesting, uh, read the room. Another thing about Hamlet's hit points that I think is perhaps even more important, but less clear because there's not a big system devoted to it, is in order to have in a scene something that you hope will happen and something that you fear will happen, the scene has to pose a question of some kind. Is the rock going to roll over Indiana Jones? Is Sherlock Holmes going to find the guy in the suit of armor who's been lurking around? Is Richie Rich going to get his fortune back? There's a uh, question... That motivates any great scene. And when your game starts to become a situation not where people are too dispirited or too cocky, but a scene has become uh, boring and you're not sure what's going on, then uh, the moment when you uh, ask yourself, "What is the question of this scene?" and often you'll find the scene has no question. That it's just uh, often uh, it may be that the players have gone off in a direction of uh, arguing with each other or speculating for so long or off on some sort of conversational side tangent that uh, there's nothing that you care is going to happen or not. Or it's just sort of gotten muddled in everybody's minds what it is that they're trying to do. And so when you see that happen, the technique is to restate the question, is to uh, either, for example, in, in drama system, uh, I will just say, okay, bring it in for landing or, you know, What's the purpose of this scene? Or in a more traditional game, it's have something happen that reminds everybody what they want and what the stakes are and what the point of the current scene is because you've wandered into the the prairie of, uh, the premise prairie of you know, why are we here? What are we doing? Uh, we've drifted off not into an interesting side tangent driven by the players, but into a land of boredom. Let's uh, and sometimes you just have to make up a new question and impose it, you know, are here come the death ostriches, are you going to deal with them, uh, are you going to get killed by the death ostriches, or are you going to kill them and, and uh, roast them and have a delicious ostrich feast, or you know, something that brings you back to the question, so uh, to go back to the alien craft thing, it's like you, if, if things have gotten boring and you're not sure why you're in this particular uh, market uh, trying to buy sand spice, all of a sudden ping Somebody's monitoring instrument goes and you get a uh, resonance detection of the possibility of the alien craft being nearby. So that's another technique that I think is less obvious. Certainly I've spoken about it less, but it's uh, just as important, if not more so, is to ask yourself, what question is this scene posing?
1: Yeah. The notion of having every goal for a scene, though, again, you can say, you know, the What's the question that the scene is posing in a story situation? And that, of course, is the key to gumshoe. What, what answer do you need to get into the story more? But the question of emotional tenor or what, uh, what, um, what sort of, uh, other beats is the scene accomplishing? I think that the trick is to only start introducing that question to your own mind. Once you are very, very confident in your ability to handle the basic functionality of the scene to be interesting ideally to be to be motivating to move people into the next scene and to provide a um uh, a reinforcement of the world's fundamental reality and even if that world is a crazy dreamlands reality where everything goes bananas all the time, you want to reinforce that with the scene, so a scene has to keep the players in the world it has to situate the players in the story and then it also has to hold your interest and that's that's a job of work to do already without having to consider are we uh feeling good or are we feeling bad about the scene and so i would just caution uh people to make sure that they've got the fundamental job of the scene before they start worrying about well, now that I've built my uh, my my uh, intricate chair, is it placed correctly in the room, right? I worry about the feng shui of the game well after you've actually dug the ditch, I guess.
0: Um, I would go at a slightly different angle and say that these are diagnostic tools to use only when something seems to have gone wrong. So that uh, if everything is going along tickety-boo and people are engaged and they are uh, neither dispirited nor bored, uh, you've already done that job. You don't need to go tinkering with it and trying to calibrate it by three more degrees in order to get some sort of platonic ideal, perfect engagement. Right. But when things are starting to go south, it's a good way to ask yourself how to get them, I guess, North, I guess mm-hmm. it's the opposite of things going. south. Right. yes. Uh, and, and so I would reinforce what you're saying is it's not another thing to tie yourself up with, but it's a, uh, you know, a narrative defragging program to pull out when, uh, things are you're starting to lose touch with the group and you know, the question is how can i quickly re-engage them and so the things that you're trying to re-engage them for are either uh sort of hopelessness and or boredom and there's different solutions for those two things which i have already uh stated so i think uh, we've answered that question and can move on to our next segment The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane
1: supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula Dossier is finally available for you, the home
0: listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6
1: analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200
0: different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by
1: Edom. Or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula
0: dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken, unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pellgrain website right now. Check! And, mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The poison-tipped umbrella, the dead drop by the park bench, and the fedora with the primitive... Listening device in it tell us that we've not only entered the trade craft hut, but we're going back into a historical trade craft hut, and this time we're looking at the career of uh, someone who's been known as the uh, uh, so-called Soviet James Bond, and that's true at least in the sense that he was enthusiastic about using his license to kill. Uh, we're looking at the career of Yakov Blumkin, who was uh, part of the. Early uh, Soviet Union, and therefore, I think we're going to have to get into the weeds a bit on all of these uh, factions uh, that were operating and uh, betraying one another at the uh, at the beginning of the Soviet Union. So, Ken, where's the uh, accessible entry point into the uh, life and many exploits of Yakov Blumkin?
1: Okay, um, the probably the easiest way to get into Yakov Blumkin is. To begin with his career with the Cheka, which was Dzerzhinsky's spy service set up to replace the Czarist uh, Okhrana after the Bolsheviks took over the Soviet Union. Now, when the and, Bolsheviks... And who was he briefly? Uh, Jer- Dzerzhinsky? Yeah, He was a Polish conspirator, I guess, fundamentally. And he created uh, the secret police for Lenin because Lenin, no idiot, realized that since he had this tiny minority party governing the country, he needed to have a much more proactive secret police than the czar ever did. Right. And this happens in 1917. Right. Yeah. He, he starts being Lenin's, uh, uh comrade on the topic of overthrowing Lenin, if on no other topics, uh, in 1917. Oh, overthrowing the czar. Yeah, no, no, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's against overthrowing Lenin. That's his big thing. He's, uh, he's to the left of Lenin on some other questions, but he he recognizes that Lenin is the guy whose who's wagon he's hitched to and who is going to take the Bolsheviks to to victory. So okay. even though he's I, I told he's you there would be weeds, people. Right. There are lots of weeds here. He is to the left of Lenin, but he is not Trotsky-like in the sense that he feels like he should be running everything. He is also not Trotsky-like in that he is running a secret police, not an army. But the other difference is that because he is to the left of Lenin, he hires a lot of other people who are to the left of Lenin in uh, what is called the Left Socialist Revolutionary Party to fill out his uh, Cheka organization. And one of, and one of the Left Socialist Revolutionaries that he hires is our buddy Yakov Blumkin. And Blumkin had been a, uh, LSR activist and terrorist during the run up to the, to the Bolshevik Revolution and then gets brought into the Cheka. And is put in charge of counterintelligence by Dzerzhinsky. And he's making, uh, basically his job is to figure out who needs to be shot by the Cheka to keep the revolution on an even keel. He's, uh, you know, sitting around making lists. And because he was an LSR, his lists tended to be the not LSR parts of the revolution. Which is virtually everyone. Which is virtually everyone. So, uh, Lenin is starting off with a, with a bang.
0: And the, the, the Cheka killed an incredible number of people during this period. It's oh, a yeah. horrible, gruesome episode in history.
1: And that's just the shootings. Obviously, the Cheka also did an awful lot of, you know, sort of, um, uh, turning people over to, uh, be starved to death or, or, or overrun by, by, uh, other armies or whatever else. But yeah, just the standing people up against the wall and shooting them, you know, there's, Tens of thousands, certainly hundreds of thousands possibly that, that they took out. So anyway, one of the differences that Dzerzhinsky and uh, Blumpkin have with Lenin is the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the treaty that will surrender the Ukraine and huge stretches of Russia to the Germans as a way to get out of World War I. The Germans win World War I against the Russians, and they impose a punitive treaty that will strip um, uh, huge swaths of Russia from uh, Russia and turn it over, basically, to Germany to run. Uh, The LSRs are against that. Lenin, uh, again, being a fairly clear-headed fellow, understands that if you you don't give the Germans a peace treaty, they will keep attacking you, and that will also make it very, very hard for you to uh, fulfill your promise of peace to the people of Russia who are sick of fighting Germans. For obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, that's a a fine point of peace treaties that I I guess is often ignored.
1: (laughs) It apparently was ignored far more by the left socialist revolutionaries and Trotsky than it was by most people. Um, So anyway, the LSR leadership tells Blumkin to assassinate the German ambassador to Russia, a guy named Wilhelm Mirbach. And indeed, he does. Um, uh, Shoots him at point blank. Uh The LSRs attempt to mount a coup d'etat because they realize that shooting the German ambassador is the kind of thing you can't walk back. And so Blumkin uh flees uh, Moscow, goes to the Ukraine where the LSRs are trying to run their own revolution, joins the LSRs, Cheka, and then uh sells them all out to the Bolsheviks again in 1919, basically as a pardon to let himself be brought back into the Cheka. Uh, at this point, I believe it's the NKVD or OGPU rather. By the Bolsheviks. Because again, Blumkin knows, you know, basically who's going to win this fight between the LSRs and uh, the Bolsheviks. And it was obvious when the LSR coup in Moscow fails. Right. So. Because he knows
0: the LSR is full of crazy people because he is one of them.
1: He is one of them. Yes. He knows them very well. So, uh, Blumkin, uh, you know, Jerzynski sort of tries a, a remote control purge. To, he sends him back to the Ukraine to kill Admiral Kolchak, who was the head of the white forces. And, uh, so he's in the Ukraine. And the, the white forces are the anti communists. The anti communists. Uh, he's in the Ukraine trying to, uh, assemble teams to kill Admiral Kolchak, but the trouble is that you have to go and talk to all of your old buddies, who in this case are LSRs, and so they kept trying to kill Blumkin. So, what with one thing weird another, how that happens when you betray them? He never, he never quite gets around to killing Kolchak, but. He never quite getting killed either. And he winds up joining the Red Army. And I think this is probably where he starts making connections with Trotsky. Because Trotsky, if you've got Lenin and Zerzynski mad at you, there's only one other place to go. So Trotsky at least gives him a position in the Red Army as a counterintelligence uh, officer. And then with Trotsky's patronage, he gets back into uh, Zerzynski's outfit. Right. And
0: Trotsky's patronage, spoiler, will later come back to haunt him. Later come back to bite him.
1: Yeah. So um now the story just goes bananas. You thought it was bananas before? Oh, it was not. He's sent to Iran to overthrow the communist government of northern Iran and replace it with a Soviet government of northern Iran. He infiltrates the Baku Congress of Nationalities, which is the activist part, again, of the Soviet Comintern, I guess you'd say, that they want the, uh, Lenin to immediately begin the revolution in all countries, that they want him to send guys out to Iraq and India and wherever else to overthrow the British Empire. Lenin again is thinking he has way more problems and, and if he can get the British to stop bankrolling people like Admiral Kol- Kolchak, then maybe we can get around to building the communist paradise. Oh, Lenin and your care for feasibility. Yes. With your, You're with your crazy kid, you bare knowledge of practicality, keeping you alive. He's in the, um, uh, Congress of oppressed nationalities, probably running a bunch of the delegates. They all vote to, uh, uh, overthrow the hated British, but Lenin eventually says, no, we're not doing that. So he gets brought back to Moscow. Um, he goes into the military college and you'll note every time he tries to push Lenin to the left, he has to run and hide with Trotsky. So he does it again, um, and winds up working for Trotsky while he's writing um, his military theory books, including editing the section on how it's very important to crush <laughs> the left socialist revolutionaries.
0: Yes. <laughs> so
1: that's um, uh, Anyone who betrayed the left socialist revolution <laughs> has a great guy. Yeah. Here's a fellow. Um, so then, the OGPU as it has become, uh, send Blumkin to, back into the, the Middle East. And now no one really knows what he was doing. Uh, between 1924 and 1929, he may have been running the OGPU in Soviet Georgia. He may have been, uh, infiltrating, uh, the Persian or the Turkish government. He was in the Soviet delegation to the Soviet Turkish and Soviet Persian border commissions. So he's out wandering around these border areas with his official letter that says he can do that. Um, he was, um, uh, keeping in touch with weird radical poets, uh, the basically the Maxim Gorky, uh, faction of the Trotskyist faction. So he's still running his, uh, underground farther left, uh, circles. He's, sneaking into Afghanistan to meet with the Aga Khan about this, Hey, let's overthrow the British thing, probably on his own hook, uh, went disguised himself. They say as a dervish, uh, which is a, uh, religious ecstatic, um, and went down into Ceylon to map all the British military positions. He secretly ran Mongolia. They say he went to Tibet because everyone gets to go to Tibet. If they're awesome. At some point he was apparently connected to Gleb Boki's, uh, Um, magical cryptological circles in uh lenin's organization so
0: he's got a sideline as an antiquarian uh selling and probably smuggling and stealing uh
1: judaica yes exactly jewish uh, incunabula which he has been looting from synagogues in ukraine and elsewhere and then selling on the open market to finance the uh soviet operations in palestine he's got a uh a jewish um uh a cover identity, uh, again, going into Palestine to work against the hated British who finally kick him out of Palestine once they cotton on to what's going on. And he's basically running this operation by the end of it out of Turkey. And it is in Turkey where Trotsky has decided to go live for his health because Lenin has died and Stalin is now in charge and Stalin does not have the hail fellow well-met attitude towards Trotsky that uh, Lenin did. Yes, he's not interested in there being other factions. No. Stalin believes in one faction at most. So he gets word that one of his top uh, OGPU men is canoodling with Trotsky and had been buddies with all these other leftists like um, uh, Karl Roddick and uh, John Reed. And so he's like, well, we've got to take out... Uh, uh He gives the orders. We've got to uh, take out Blumkin. They plant a uh, different KGB agent or GPU agent on him, uh, Lisa Gorskaya, and she uh, lures him into pillow talk in the in the great way of spies everywhere. And uh, amongst his pillow talk, uh, at least according to her, is. We should probably get rid of Stalin and put Trotsky back in charge.
0: Oddly, he said exactly the thing they wanted him to say in order to execute him.
1: It's weird. And so the um, uh, the agents show up to arrest him. He escapes in a car. He's uh, stopped at, at gunpoint. Uh, turns to uh, uh, Lisa Gorskaya and says, Lisa, you have betrayed me in proper uh, 1920s spy fashion. He's dragged off and tried. Uh, by the highest uh, officers of the uh, GPU, um, Yagoda, who is the guy who runs it, uh, Menjinsky who's sort of a um, uh, uh, apparatchik and another guy who's apparently just there to make sure that there's, um, that there's always going to be a vote to kill somebody, but uh, Yagoda votes. Yes. Manzinski votes. I don't know. So it goes up to Stalin and Stalin says, are you people insane? I told you to kill people. And uh, sure enough, according to the legend, um, he's given two weeks to write his autobiography and then he's shot. If that's true, that would be one of those great uh, things that Stalin did for literature, like not having um, uh, Bulgakov murdered. <laughs> because if we ever find that autobiography, it is going to be the greatest piece of imaginative spy fiction written in the 1920s, I promise you.
0: Now, uh, that happens in 1929, so that uh, puts Blumkin out of the Trail of Cthulhu 30s timeline. But uh, if you're running a uh, Call of Cthulhu scenario
1: that features him, what
0: would you uh,
1: run? Well, first of all, I think that it is very naive of you to say that we have merely taken him out of the 30s by having him shot in 1929. Oh, we're we're getting to that. All right. Now, in the 1920s, um, obviously, he is out there scheming with people who are against the hated British, but the people who are against the hated British do not include only heroic folks like Gandhi and Ben Gurion. They also include cults of Near Lathotep and such. Uh, you know, a Chagnar Fawn up there in 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 Tibet wanting to freeze time or whatever. So I would say that Blumkin because he's worked with Boki and he understands this sort of mystical dimension of the spy war. He is probably the Soviet, uh, ambassador to Lang, if you will, and is out there doing the bidding like in the same way that he's doing the bidding of people like Trotsky, even though he's supposed to be working for the GPU, he's doing the bidding of the, of the yellow veiled, llama of Lang or the Chocho, uh, high priests or somebody when he's running around the middle East fomenting things. And among the things that he is fomenting is of course, um, uh, Cthulhu worshippers in northern Iran, or he's fomenting um, uh, the cult of Dagon in Syria, or something like that.
0: Now, of course, as you and I know, uh, he didn't die in 1929 because that two-week period to write his autobiography, he was just stalling until uh, his vampire contact could get to him and visit him into a cell and turn him so that uh, after his execution he could just claw his way out of the grave. So, how does Blumpkin feature in a modern-day uh, knight's Black Agents campaign, where he is a vampire.
1: I want to briefly uh, put a pin in that and go back to the faking his own death thing. Um, according to uh, a guy named Gordon Brookshepard, who is an anti-communist historian, the best kind of historian, he says that Blumkin was sent to assassinate Stalin's secretary, Boris Bajanov. Now, all over the gulag, even Solzhenitsyn writes that Bajanov had been assassinated by Blumkin. It turns out that story is made up by Stalin, and he just never says what happens to Bajanov. Bajanov, in fact, escaped about three assassination attempts.
0: He turned out to be conspicuously non-assassinated until, like,
1: 83. Right. And so, once you've got this notion of Stalin making up the fact that people died, people very closely connected to Blumkin, I think it's also possible that now that he's faked his death... Stalin's like, no more working on your own. You're working for me, because at a word from me, you're going to be dead. I have the I, I know your true name, right? I can kill you at a at a remote distance. And he becomes a vampire killer for Stalin. Or, or in the sense of an undead killer for Stalin. Someone who's a Zalojny living he's escaped his moment of death and he's out there wandering around uh plotting against people. So in a modern day Knights Black Agents game, he is a Zalojny, just like in the Zlozny quartet, and the Zalojni is a uh, is a, is an old Russian legendary vampire, someone who usually freezes to death out in the in the snow and so he 's never buried and so he 's never technically dead and so he can wander around and in our nights black agents mythology, azelojny is someone whose death has been captured magically, and so they can 't be killed and they're and they wander around being vampires and so in this uh, version, Blumkin is definitely a zalojny he 's out there doing the will of x person and whether that person is still stalin because he's still stuck doing stalin's will whatever that might be and maybe he's the last the last sort of redoubt of stalinism in in russia he's one of the secret uh movers behind uh, putin and the and the broader stalinist uh faction within the kremlin uh maybe he's out uh you know stalin's death has maybe freed him and so he wanders around doing only what he remembers which is uh conspiring against the hated british or maybe he's got his own agenda by now and he's actually trying to bring about a final left social revolution and rather than you know uh functioning as a stalinist functionary he's actually out there um uh, encouraging uh the the communists in, in Kurdistan or whatnot, not uh, because obviously the communist uh, faction in Kurdistan is the only people who are actually fighting isis effectively with the possible exception of the other kurds so perhaps Blumkin is like a low-level version of the Dracula dossier in that he's fighting an evil force Isis, but he's still a horrible vampire and still needs to be taken out so that the communist Kurds can be freed of his undead thrall.
0: Uh, well, now that we've got uh, a plot hook for two different games, I think we can uh, declare our brief encapsulation of the career of Yakov Blumkin at an end and move on to our next segment. In a post-apocalyptic landscape, only you can protect the
1: survivors,
0: getting them from the hell of
1: Texas, through the vicious gauntlet of the Chaos Gangs, to the safety of California. You are the Freeway Warrior.
0: From Joe Davers' classic game books. Updated, revived, and turbocharged. By the Freeway Warrior Kickstarter from AskFagelm. Running now until July 7th. Take your pick of two editions, English or Swedish. Take one part Mad Max. A heaping helping of Wild West. Garnish with some Grapes of Wrath. And you've got Freeway Warrior. Now, kickstarting. Go to Kickstarter and search for Freeway Warrior. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Andrew Collins, Horatio Rutkowski, Neil Kaplan, Linda and Mike Schiffer, and James Pearson. Give us an upbeat by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Cool Ranch Doritos, and the benevolent gaze... Of Peter Frampton coming alive. Tell us we've once more entered the gaming hut. But in the gaming hut, Peter Frampton is asking the players, are you sure you want to do that? Yes. Peter Frampton <laughs> is leading us in breaking the fourth wall. And that's is the sort of thing that we've all done from time to time. Yes.
0: Well, if, if you're on a wall, it's the next step to do It is the, the next wall. step.
1: It's the first step, really. Um, cause you don't have a, a step before that. And, and from time to time, we've all done it. We've said, well, are you sure? Or things like that. But I think that when we're talking about breaking the fourth wall in gaming, we're talking about bigger questions even than that. We're talking about things like, um, that goes against the intent of the scenario, do you mind not hosing me? Or things like that. Robin, is that what you intended when you broke the fourth wall to pose this question?
0: Yeah, so so my question is that even today, three decades into the advent of uh games, there are still (laughs) people who are reluctant to just break for a moment and particularly as a gm to say hey are we sure that this is going on or what what's our intent here or you know really that's uh you're kind of making a a problem here can we cut that out maybe uh and the question and there are still people and in the olden days there were way more people who thought that that was poor form and what i would like to uh stroke our chins about for this segment is why did that happen? Why did we think that way? Because there's an obvious contradiction in the whole idea of there being a fourth wall in a role-playing session, because the other three walls aren't really in place, right? It's a theatrical metaphor. It's about, uh, you know, the character who steps out of character to to directly address the audience. But in a a role-playing game, it's not a play, it's not a movie. You're all sitting around the table, and you're constantly referring to the mechanics of storytelling. Because guess what? You've got game mechanics. So why is saying roll for initiative not breaking the fourth wall? Whereas saying, oh, hey, can we just not do the weekly inter-party fight where the paladin and the thief try to kill each other? Can we just skip that this week? Because actually nobody other than you two enjoy that. Because uh, if you look back at um, older GM advice, there's often advice to tell you to have the world retaliate against dysfunctional play so in uh somewhere in the dmg uh gary recommends that if someone is uh, being a real problem at the table you get them you have them hit by a 3d6 bolt from the blue a energy beam suddenly appears to hit your character because you the player are being kind of recalcitrant Um, You will also hear people who were steeped in the original generation of GMing uh, when they are uh, asked a GMing question about how to deal with this dysfunctional play or that dysfunctional play. They will say, well, have have something happen in the world. Have a bunch of goblins come through the window and attack them. Rocks fall, you die. Rocks fall, you die. Whereas these are not necessarily the uh, most efficient way to directly address a problem at the table. And, in fact, I think kind of reinforce those problems by saying there's certain things that the GM just can't say, like, hey, cut this out, or, you know what, you're the only one enjoying this part, Uh, but that rather the GM has to work through an elaborate workaround of having the world press in to, you know, if you're the character who is dragging on the conversation with the sword salesman for 20 minutes while everybody... Uh, uh checks out and starts checking their phones uh that you can't just say okay we skip to the end and you have the the sword rather than oh well i guess there's a fight in the marketplace everybody run in and join them. because all of those solutions uh break something else they either break credibility or uh they uh, break the idea of everybody being there at the table to uh have a uh, fun with each other, and, and, oh, look, now we've got a big bizarre fight that we didn't want to get into that doesn't have anything to do with the story, and it's just there as a response to a smaller problem, and I've just larded in a bigger problem to uh, have that uh, fixed. So that's definitely been a thing. Why do you think that was a thing?
1: I think there's two reasons that that was a thing, and one of them is sort of an extrusion of the old geek social fallacy that um, we can't ever throw someone out we can't ever confront anyone directly because they are tribe we must keep them in tribe and drag them along on all our tribe adventures no matter what kind of a pain they are and the other part of it is something that was probably not foremost in the mind of gary and the earliest uh, neckbeards but came more to the fore in the later uh more story inflected games and that is that it would break immersion I'm just playing my character. My character naturally hates being told what to do by the paladin. My character always dickers with sword sellers. My character is a giant pain, and I'm just playing him as a giant pain. And that's, and that's just how I am, man, and you can't step on that.
0: Yeah, it's just a coincidence that I always pick a player who's a giant pain. Yeah. And that the character is always a giant pain the way that I am always a giant pain. Exactly. in fact, reveals that I come to this game in order to get my fun by taking away all of yours by being a giant
1: pain. Although that is uh that is certainly true and does happen, I think a lot of other people begin following interior character logic to the detriment of group communal activity. Yes. And that's not to say one is right and one is wrong, but it is absolutely to say that one is to the detriment of group communal activity. And so you get that in uh a lot of games uh your your vampires and your ambers where drawing your characters uh, through some sort of emotional crisis is a fundamental part of the game, they feel like if they're not playing out this fundamental emotional crisis in the stormy first-person fashion that all narrative about emotional crisis teaches us to d- depict it as – then they are not really playing what their character is feeling. And the amount of derailment of the general story is irrelevant because in their head, the story is always about their character. And that's not the same as the guy who's just picking fights to be a jerk, but it is the same as no one get to have any fun that day. Right.
0: And because weirdly those things bleed into each other because uh, surprisingly often the person who wishes to privilege their I'm just playing my character man above everything else Uh, coincidentally, wants to have their character always saying no to what everybody else wants to do or what would move the story forward. That if you you are the I'm-just-being-me guy and you're being you in a way that moves the story forward, that's one thing. But if you're requiring everybody to petition you for permission to all move ahead and do the thing that you all showed up to do that night, you are seizing emotional power in a way that you may or may not be conscious of, but is a none the, nonetheless is a different way of exploiting that geek social fallacy that you mentioned. And I will add also that the reason it's a fallacy is because that's mostly just a rationalization for the fact that introverted people don't like confronting each other and don't like being direct with one another, and the... Mythology of acceptance uh, is partly true, but is also just partly a justification for avoiding a thing that you don't want to do anyway.
1: And also, like like all virtues, it can be um, uh, manipulated by people who are jerks. Yeah, I mean that's just what that's the downside of virtue. People, uh, fortunately, it will get you stars in your crown in heaven. But anyway, so the question being, is there a way to break the fourth wall that? is uh that is better than simply out of game saying uh look we 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 get that the hobbit and the elf always fight let's take it as red this time and move along or are you sure you want to go across the desert of no encounters that are written instead of into the dungeon of infinite fun and is that the best we can do or are there other ways that we can that we can approach it because Right now, talking to people out of character and plainly strikes me as um, uh, the sort of uh, IKEA furniture. It'll get the job done, but it may not class the joint up in the way that you want. Do we have something better than IKEA furniture to offer? Yeah,
0: and I think, first of all, you have to determine uh, whether the thing that you want to point out is just a perfectly acceptable choice that is invisible to the players, but they're not seeing the consequence of. Mm-hmm. So, the I've got encounters built for the dungeon, but not for the wilderness – is not They're not being jerks by wanting to go into the wilderness uh, unless they have a jerky fondness for, you know, hexes over squares. Right. Uh, and so for something like that, I, I would think that you will want to find some way of in character making them feel smart for doing the thing that will get them more fun. So, you know, the uh, character has a... Uh, Uh, You know, well, as an expert in geography, you know that the trackless waste is indeed a trackless waste and all sorts of people die there. And you have a journal here of a a series of explorers who went there and found nothing so that it makes sense in world for you to know that the fun is over in the dungeon. The other category, though, is what we've already discussed is the undermining play that is consistent over time and has not been, you know, has not been amenable to your previous more subtle efforts to nudge things forward. But if you can do things in a way that sort of invokes narrative technique rather than totally breaking character, yeah, sure, that's better. It's like if the guy is completely, who, who always drags on the conversation with the irrelevant sword seller is doing that once again, you can just go, cut to and mm-hmm. start telling more stories somewhere else and that still will be a little bit jarring for the person who wants to have this inane conversation that no one else is interested in but it's not you're not scolding him for his habit of doing that you're just sort of uh, having the story move on and having him catch up to where the rest of the story is
1: so where on this spectrum would you have the uh part where the characters are going to do something that you know as the gm will get them all killed but you know obviously is forward to the action it's it's a reflex that you want to encourage and it is a thing that is in character they're all paladins or they're all rangers or they're all jason bournes um and so they're all going to move to the sound of the of the guns but you as the gm are like oh this is way too much this is going to crush the campaign in a way that no one could foresee, including me when I put this room in or when I put this guy in or whatever. Uh, is there a thing that you can do? Because, again, in the Zoligny Quartet, we say, if you have military science, you know that this is a death trap. Right. Um, And you and you provide that. Is there a, a more elegant uh, version of that piece of IKEA furniture that we can offer? That sort of breaking the fourth wall? Right.
0: And, and that's an example of the unconsciously suicidal action where right. the players understand what's going on differently than you do. And you need to have their in-character world understanding shift to match your understanding so that, you know, if they're walking into a realistically depicted lava flow and will all be completely incinerated, if they're charging into the lava, they're making some sort of mistaken assumption as to their imperviousness to lava or, you know, what have you, or, you know, if there's a artillery barrage or whatever it is, and... Uh indeed, there's got to be, no matter what the game, if you're an experienced uh, explorer, uh, you can just say, you know that if you want to get over the hill and get to the other side and, and join that army, which is your whole point of doing this, you're actually just going to all hideously flash cook and die, or you're going to be ripped apart by the artillery. That's a good impulse, but your characters would know that that particular solution is certain death. And I think that... You know, that little phrase your characters would know is less fourth wall breaking and is more about sort of melding your sense of the reality of what must happen or not. The other solution, of course, is to uh, change the, uh, the threat so that it's not certain death. Right. If you haven't if they're running into that barrage or toward that lava. You haven't established in world that it's certain death, so you can change it yeah. and and have it not be certain death.
1: Or you can provide a you know the unit that is um, moving slightly ahead of them up the ridge that is uh, blown to pink mist by the artillery barrage and give them a an opportunity to rethink their plan.
0: Yeah, because I think that last thing is just a disconnect of information, which is uh, you know there's a whole bunch of ways to fix that. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we're uh, now moving on to fix. Uh, other problems that i wasn't addressing in our original topic so we can now head along to our final segment when you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists,
1: conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agent that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for.
0: And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for.
1: Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing. In oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The
0: furtive glances, the disturbing org chart on the bulletin board, the Crabbed script on the handbill that is nauseatingly pasted to the telephone pole that you can see out the window tell us that we've once more ventured into that most shadowy and sinister corners of the podcast, and that is the conspiracy corner. And this time we have a conspiracy by request. uh Patreon backer Darren Hennessy wants to know about the business plot. Uh, this is something that happened. Uh, or did it in 1933, but at least someone came forward to say that there was a plot to uh, overthrow FDR in all but figurehead status. And uh, that person who came forward was the person who had allegedly been put forward to lead the coup, which he was not interested in doing, or so he said. And this man was a retired Marine Major General Smedley Butler. What exactly did Smedley Butler have to say about the business
1: plot well, he had a great deal to say about the business plot. Um, he said uh, specifically that a guy named Gerald Maguire attempted to recruit him into leading uh, a coup d'etat against Roosevelt, promising him five hundred thousand men and financial banking from the uh, Warburgs and uh, the, uh, Chase, uh, the the Chase Bank and all of the other uh, rich guys who were angry at FDR for going off the gold standard and for generally being all FDR about uh things.
0: And and briefly, uh, what was the gold standard and why were people angry that they went off it?
1: Uh, the gold standard basically says that, you know, if you have X amount of American money, you can trade it in for gold at any time. And that provides a powerful deflator to the economy. It controls uh government spending because they can't print a bunch of money that they can't back with gold. And it uh helps out uh people who have um fixed assets uh over those who have debts because obviously by keeping things from being inflated it prevents um uh, people from being able to pay off debts simply by waiting for the currency to inflate them out of uh, out of problems so it fundamentally helps established property owners which happen to be all these rich guys that butler claims uh were backing this coup d'etat attempt so
0: he comes forward, he says, uh, this guy who knew all these other rich guys and said they had an, an army, promised me the ability to be uh, the de facto uh, president. And so what does he do with this information?
1: He goes to a journalist uh, named uh, Paul French, who had been his uh, former secretary, and he says, come and check out this McGuire guy and see if he's for real. And then it gets leaked by French, so probably by Butler, to uh, the Philadelphia Record and the New York Post. Um, it then gets brought to the attention of good old Congress and good old Congress says, well, if there's going to be a coup d'etat against the president, we want in on that. Or in this case, (laughs) they did not say that because they were all good Democrats having been, uh, dumped into office by the, uh, landslide of 1932. And, uh, the McCormick Dickstein committee, uh, has uh, lengthy hearings on the topic of, is there a giant coup d'etat against the president? And when they discover that the only person who's naming the names of uh, the heads of the Chase Bank or the head of Goodyear, the head of DuPont, um, or uh, the sitting Senator Prescott Bush, um, they say, you don't actually have what we in the Congress business call evidence, do you? And Smedley Butler says, well, I know that they're all up to something because I've been a socialist for, you know, the, the better part of two years. And that's sort of, you know, uh, a matter of faith with us. And Congress says, well, we may be a Democratic New Deal Congress, but we're not insane. So they left all those names out of the testimony, and they published the thing uh, that says, yes, uh, General Butler was approached by this guy, McGuire. McGuire did mention a plot. The reality of the plot is uh, not in evidence. uh, Problem solved. Uh, Go in peace, all of you. And don't overthrow McGuire did not turn out to be a heavy hitter of any kind. No, he was sort of a little um, – he was a salesman. Um, And he was uh, vaguely connected with the American Legion. Uh, He said that he was, I think, the chairman of the American Legion in um, uh, Connecticut or something. And uh, he was trying to recruit uh, Butler to run for national commander of the American Legion and then use that as, uh, according to McGuire or according to Butler, that would be his stepping stone to taking over the government with the backing of these uh, rich capitalists who I hate Roosevelt.
0: So what did Maguire have to say for himself? What was his story?
1: Well, his story was, um, probably something on the order of, Oh, I was just funnin'. <laughs> he, uh, he, he definitely met with Butler. Um, that's, that was established by the committee. Butler says, Maguire said, I should lead a coup. Maguire said, I never said any such thing, but his co- correspondence with a guy named Robert S. Clark, who was the heir to the singer sewing machine fortune, um, and a lieutenant in the Marine Corps, uh, seems to have indicated that at the very least, Maguire and Clark are really interested in what other military backed fascist movements are doing in Europe. Um, so they know that Maguire and Clark have been looking into other fascist coup d'etats in, in nascency, uh, in France, especially, uh, which again had the, the, the Cagoule and the Croix de Faux, which were, Funded by major French industrialists, um, against the, the socialist government. So that's where the, the evidence stands. And the committee said, well, given our choice between believing a multiply decorated Marine major general and a weaselly guy named Maguire, we're obviously going to believe a multiply decorated major general. And so they said, yeah, uh, Maguire obviously must have come to Butler and, and made this, uh, offer. And however, the committee then goes on to say, but, Whether or not the offer was genuine, no one can tell, because there's no evidence one way or the other.
0: So uh, what does uh, conspiratorial history uh, suggest? There's uh, uh, a couple of suggestions you've dangled here, which is that there really was a uh, plot, but it was not as uh, well-connected as uh, it was made out to be. Uh, Two, that uh, uh, Butler was just uh, uh, sort of a crackpot, or uh, I guess the other option would be there really was a, uh, a conspiracy. What uh, do you think uh, really happened?
1: What I think really happened is that McGuire and Singer, because they were both, not Singer, Maguire and Clark, because they were both part of the American Legion, which was kind of wired into the business elites all across America, because obviously it would be, um, were interested in seeing something like the Bonus Army, which was a a group of veterans that marched on Washington to try and get their promised bonuses paid and, uh, then were dispersed by, uh, Douglas MacArthur, uh, and, um, uh, his cavalry, uh, much to the joy of everyone, I'm sure. Uh, the, the bonus army they looked at and they said, oh, if only it had been led by the good people of the American Legion, it could have overthrown Roosevelt for good instead of, uh, just panicking President Hoover. And so the, uh, that probably got them thinking of having a coup d'etat and then, they sort of cast around and realized that they didn't really have anyone to lead a coup d'etat, but because Clark knew Butler, he said, I'll, you know, maybe you should approach Butler. Maybe he'd be interested in, in it. Now, this would imply that Clark is sort of clueless because even in 1933, Butler has been going around trying to found the veterans of foreign wars as a counterweight to the American Legion to basically create a um a uh, more populist veterans organization that would oppose the um uh pro business american legion uh, he, he called it um getting the the veterans out of the sucker class so butlers uh, right after the bonus army which is probably the radicalizing moment in his life he begin- he moves far to the left and becomes a terrible choice for this. Even if you thought that you had DuPont and everybody else behind you for a coup d'etat, you would not be approaching Smedley Butler. But it's arguable that Clark doesn't understand that people think that because he's, you know, he was known as the, mil- the millionaire Marine and the millionaire lieutenant and uh, was probably sort of uh, detached from reality. And so he would have he approaches uh butler butler goes along with it to find out what's going on like a good patriotic american and then when he gets into congress probably can't resist overegging the pudding because he knows that you know as the uh, in the marine corps when he's invading Haiti and Nicaragua he's doing it for the United Fruit Company he assumes therefore that it's uh just as sure that Goodyear is trying to uh overthrow uh, Roosevelt for the what was then not called the military industrial complex, but was just the industrial complex, because they didn't barely even have a military.
0: So this was not a coup? It was it most a trial balloon for a coup? But mm-hmm. did this wind up infiltrating the general conspiracy mythology? Do present day conspiracy theorists still invoke the
1: business plot? Uh yes. And that and that's for two reasons. First, because it is one of your classic uh it, it feeds and again, because I think Butler uh either confabulated or Heard what he wanted to hear, or encouraged Maguire to confabulate this right-wing plot against a left-wing president. It has wound up being a a, a doctrine of left-wing conspiracy theorists that. Uh, American capitalism is just slavering at the bit to overthrow the government instead of buy the government and um, uh, <laughs> you get one stop shopping by strengthening the government. It's like overthrowing your own beautiful new furniture suite that you spent a lot of money for. Exactly. Why would you overthrow your 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 Department of uh, Public Affairs? So the uh, so this is part of the left wing conspiracy mythos, and because Prescott Bush got named. Uh, People who hated, 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 hated George H.W. and George W. drag it out uh, whenever they want to beat uh, Bush over the head. And so that becomes a ongoing sort of a thing. It also got uh, used by the communists. Back when the communists were also uh, uh, anti, uh, open anti-Semites, back previously, not currently, um, because the magazine – oh, what was it? Uh, the magazine New Masses um, uh, reveals uh, the testimony that had been taken out because it was just hearsay to, as an excuse to list a bunch of Jewish-sounding names and say, these are the faces of the capitalist plot against America. Now, everyone become a communist. And that worked about as well as everything the communists have ever done in America did.
0: Right. But the first threat of that is what then ties the Prescott Bush connection is what makes that salient to the whole um, Bilderberger group and Henry Kissinger and Dick Cheney worshiping owls and all right. that.
1: Uh, and the and the and the fact that it's uh, got an anti-Semitic tinge, therefore makes it sort of a friendly magnet to anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists of whom it can be charitably said they are the majority.
0: Yes, there's there's never a dot that they will not uh, connect to another dot. Right. Um, so, uh, speaking of things that happen uh, conveniently in the 1930s, things that happened in 1933 happen in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, they're within the remit of the Trail of Cthulhu uh, time frame. So, how does the business plot become a plot point in a Trail of Cthulhu scenario?
1: Um, my thought is, rather than just have there be an evil uh industrialist who is actually trying to overthrow the government... I think that the business plot becomes a confabulated world like the uh Castain lineage in uh, Repair of Reputations or somewhat like the Dreamlands. And that this nightmare of conspirators everywhere, rather than being reified by actual mythos conspirators... Is a nightmare that you plunge your char- your Smedley Butler esque heroic Marine characters into this notion that they're they're fighting a invisible conspiracy and saving America from the mythos is actually the symptom of them having been exposed to the mythos and the mythos is just driving them uh, out where the buses don't run. In the great line uh, from Miami uh, Vice back in the day. So the uh, the the notion that there is this uh, giant shadowy plot. Maybe it ties into the Lacagoul. Maybe there's, you know, uh, Seth Agua sorcerers over in France who are doing some of this also. But what it really is, is a, uh, is a way that, um, you build this nightmarish universe in the same way that the, um, uh, character in Repair of Reputations believes that America has a royal dynasty despite all evidence countering it. And as the author of the Repair of Reputations, Uh, scenario robin perhaps you have some more thoughts on how that could be managed in 1933
0: right and so basically what that that does in order to make it a scenario that you can interact with it doesn't work to just be a bunch of stuff that an unreliable narrator tells you there has to be a reality to it and so there's a suggestion that because of the uh, influence of the yellow king play on society that uh, what this uh, crazy guy thinks is true has become true uh, through him, through the power of his uh, irrationality combined uh, with the uh, King and Yellow effect. And so, uh, since uh, the King and Yellow is part of the Cthulhu mythos for most people, you could make it a King and Yellow story and have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Butler or uh, McGuire, uh, either directly or fictionalized versions of them, making them easier to monkey around with. Uh, that it starts out as a hoax but then the uh, yellow king effect begins to make it real and so that uh, the coup does start to uh, occur and members of the uh, the bonus army do indeed start to uh, form up and become a militia and get ready to march on Washington and so it is your job as investigators to find the sort of uh, a viral nexus point of whatever it is that is uh, channeling uh, the Yellow King force and to shut that down so that all of those changes will roll back and everybody will then just think that uh, Butler showed up in Congress and didn't have any evidence and that uh, McGuire was just a, a $100 a week bond salesman and there was nothing really to it. Well, that's the uh, sane reality washing back over and re- overwriting the Yellow King reality that uh, you have to stop.
1: And if you don't want it to be the Yellow King, obviously, Butler could have been exposed to this uh, uh, paranoid virus or this uh, curse or this world altering virus uh, in Haiti when he commanded the Marines in Haiti, um, winning his second Medal of Honor, which should just make everyone stand up and apologize to Smedley Butler for making fun of his name. And... um, uh, in Haiti he could have been cursed by a, uh, a a bokor who uh saw the the dreams of Haitian independence crushed by these marines and said for that you know your own country will be crushed uh in your mind and, and 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 curses him that way or he might have picked it up in China um when he's uh sailing up and down the Yangtze and um dealing with Chinese warlords there could have been a a Chinese warlord who has access to the um, uh, cryptical books of San and, and opens one of them and, and lures, uh, Butler into reading it or seeing it. And then Butler's, uh, reality gets, uh, shifted and shaken after he comes back from China. Um, or, you know, he could have just run into it in Philadelphia when he was running, uh, Philadelphia as sort of its, uh, military dictator and cracking down on corruption and crime. And, uh, and and maybe some you know, Philadelphia mobster is who, uh, showed him the, the king in yellow or opened his, uh, or, or infected him with ghoul venom or whatever it is that is causing uh, Butler to sort of flip back and forth between these realities.
0: Well, we've uh, mentioned the king in yellow and shifting realities enough that I do not want to cause our listeners to uh, suffer reality poisoning as a result of listening to this podcast. So I think as uh, discretion is the better part of valor that we should congratulate ourselves for having gotten this far and then wrap up this podcast as if nothing terrible has just happened. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Tork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin.
0: Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Phil Masters Tenant Reed Christopher O Wesley Griffin and Alex Johnston on Twitter he's at Kenneth Hite and he's at Robin D Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff